0: Let us pray together. Our God, you teach us that without faith it is impossible to please you. And we want to please you. You teach us that we walk by faith, not by sight. And you also teach us that faith is out of our grasp until you give us new birth, new life, new hearts. Today, teach us what it means to grow in faith and live this life of faith. We pray in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. One of the reasons to have your name on the mailing list is you receive various mailings from the church. This week, I I sent out a letter uh, giving some more information and teaching on what we looked at uh, last week, the monergistic nature of the new birth. The fact that the new birth is not something we achieve for ourselves or help God give to us, but it is something God sovereignly, uh, sovereignly, there's a word I'm going for, sovereignly, starts with a D, gives (laughs) to us by His own grace and according to His own purpose. Hopefully the rest will go smoother than that. Uh, Now that's the beginning of our life of faith, however. However, And apart from that movement in our hearts, there is no faith. Because as we've seen, Scripture teaches over and over and over again, our wills are free to do what our heart chooses. And our heart is dead and blind. Our heart hates God. Our heart not only doesn't submit to the law of God, but is unable to submit to the law of God. And from that soil will grow no saving plant, no saving fruit. It takes an act of the sovereign grace of God, moving by His Spirit, as Jesus says, like the wind blowing where it wishes, the Spirit comes and gives new birth according to the design of God. But now, the question this week is, where do I go from here? In the new birth, I'm passive. And so, God acts on me and enables me to exercise saving faith, grants to me the ability to believe, and now what do I do? Now that I've been born again does it continue that same way? Do I just float along passively, born like the wind on the wings of the Spirit of God as I am limp and passive and resign myself and as the great heretical phrase goes, let go and let God. Is that the way the Christian life is lived? Uh, No, indeed it's not and we're going to see that from Scripture today and the way I'd like to approach it is start with a brief recap from a different portion of Scripture at what we looked at last week and then show how the sovereign work of God in the new birth connects to the life we live as Christians. So let's begin reminding ourselves that the life of faith has its origins in the monergistic work of God. Uh, Roman numeral one, it is monergistic in its origins. You just need to write in M-O-N. And I remind you, and as the, the letter I sent out explains further, monergistic means that God works alone. This is a work of sovereign grace. We don't help him, we wouldn't help him. It's not in us to help him. It is something God does when He sets about to save a man or a woman. So it is monergistic in its origins, and let's consider its origins in God's eternity. This is not something that God makes up as He goes along. This is something He carries out as a result in the, of the execution of decrees and plans laid in the ages before creation, in the council chambers of the Trinity. And we will learn from that, learn about that from. John chapter 17, I'd ask you to turn there. I'll basically be using the legacy standard Bible in my preaching today. John chapter 17, now this is, the, this is the real Lord's prayer. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in this prayer, Jesus is praying for the fruition of God's eternal plan. Basically, Jesus is praying that what God has decreed and planned in eternity past be carried out now in the events of that night and the events to come. So we begin the chapter, John chapter 17. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. The, The hour has come. I mean, that itself is so pregnant. This is something planned in eternity past, waiting for the fullness of times and now is the fullness of times. The hour has come, he said. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. So he has authority over all flesh and of all flesh there is a subset that Jesus our Lord describes as those the Father gave to the Son that he may give eternal life. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now I'd like to, Uh, Come to understand this together by means of asking and answering five simple questions. Let's just ask and find the answers to five simple questions. And the first is, Jesus says that He gave some to Him. The Father gave some to Him to give eternal life to them. When did the Father give the elect to Christ? Those He chose and gave to Christ. Elect simply means chosen. Those He chose and gave to Christ, as Jesus says, when did He do that? And the answer comes in the very next words. If you look at verses 4 and 5. I glorified you on the earth having finished the work which you've given me to do. When did the Father give Jesus that work to do? Did, the day after to Christmas? Like December 26? <laughs> when did he give him this work? And of course the question, the answer is he gave it to him in eternity past. So Jesus is constantly saying, I came, I was sent. The plan was made before he was sent. He came to execute the plan. So he's talking about eternity. I glorified you on earth, having finished the work you've given me in eternity past, in the councils of the Trinity. You sent me to do this. Now, Father, glorify glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus' thoughts are reaching back to those dark, impenetrable ages before the world even began, before the first second had clicked on the cosmic clock a time of which we know nothing except what revelation tells us and this is part of what revelation tells us one of the actions that took place before the creation of the universe was this eternal plan of the godhead of father son and spirit and in this plan the father chose some of all who would be created chose some and gave those some to Christ that he might give eternal life to them. It's the same thing we read in Ephesians 1-4. You don't need to turn there, um, but I'll translate verses uh, 4 and 5 as we preach through Ephesians. Uh, uh, We read, I'm sorry, verse 4, we read, just as he chose us, he the Father chose us to be in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world for us to be holy and blameless before him in love. He regarded us as unholy and blameworthy and of that massive set He chose some to be in Christ. This is one of the spiritual blessings of all of God's people that we share in Jesus Christ. The Father chose us to be in Him and that was in eternity. So, when did the Father give the elect to Christ? He did so in eternity past. Second question, to what end did the Father give the elect to Christ? And the answer is found in verse 2. Verse 2 that to all whom you have given Him He may give eternal life. So that is the result that the Father gave these to Christ that He might give eternal life to them. So for Him to actually give, that's the, that's the end. That's the goal. So for Him to do that means that He also does everything necessary for that. So these dead, lost, guilty sinners, what must He do for them in order to give eternal life to them? It, can he just give life to their dead, rotting spiritual corpses and un, not change the corpse, uh, uh, not do anything about the sin, just lay this on top of all the death and guilt and, and, and sin and, 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 and uncleanness? No, he must atone for their sins. He must satisfy the, the law of God. He must satisfy the justice of God. He must absorb the wrath of God, do them. He's got to pay the penalty of the sins they've committed. And He has to provide for them eternal, perfect righteousness. God can't accept them unless they are perfectly righteous in His eyes. And how does He do that? Well, this is the whole work of redemption. This is the whole work of redemption. All of that is involved in Him giving eternal life. He must come as a man. He must fulfill God's law as a man. He must satisfy the justice of God as a man. Then He must take their sins on Himself. He must absorb the wrath of God in His person. He must make full atonement for their sins and His righteousness must be credited to them that they might be forgiven and that they may be counted righteous in God's eyes. All this is necessary for Him to give life. So that little phrase encompasses everything that Jesus does to save His people. So to what end did the Father give the elect to Christ in eternity past? That He might give eternal life to them by doing everything that needs to be done in order to be able to give that gift to them. What is the essence of eternal life is my third question. What is the essence of eternal life? Very simply the answer is verse 3. That they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So when Jesus says the Father gave these men and women to him. To give them eternal life, that means that He grants them actually to know God, His Father. Actually to know Him, the Son. That His action will result in their actually knowing Him. Having a relationship, a true relationship with Him. And that leads us to the next question. How do we gain this eternal life that is knowing God in Christ? How do we gain that? And that answer is all over the Bible, isn't it? It's all over the Gospel of John, isn't it? We just need to go back to everybody's favorite verse. John 3.16 For thus did God love the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. So you have everlasting life by faith. So when Jesus says the Father gave them to Him that He might give eternal life to them what must He also give to them? Faith. They will not have eternal life unless He gives faith to them. And He must give it because they're dead, they hate God, and their heart will always freely choose to hate and reject God unless God does a miracle. And that's exactly what the Gospel is. It is a miracle. So, when did the Father give the elect to Christ? In eternity past. To what end did He give them to Christ? That He may give eternal life to all of them. What is the essence of eternal life? Knowing God. How do we have eternal life? By faith. And so finally, what does this mean? What does this passage teach us? If we are willing to learn from it, it teaches us that by God's eternal decree, Christ sovereignly gives saving faith to all of God's elect. To all who God chose. And this means forgiveness. It means saving faith. It means eternal life the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ. Now, that's an eternity past. That happens before the first heart has beat. How does that work out in our history? How does that eternal decree have an impact on actual individuals in time? Well, the Word of God answers us by giving us a, a, a little vignette, an illustration in the life of somebody who comes to know this saving grace. Letter B... We see the birth of the life of faith in our history. And we do that by looking at our sister Lydia. Acts chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. We'll also take in verse 15. But do turn there please. Acts 16. And we'll see the actual um, implementation of this eternal decree of God in the life of one individual. And we'll take it apart by asking and answering five questions once again. But let me first read the verses. I'll read verses 13 through 15. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer. And sitting down, we began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening whose heart the Lord opened to pay attention to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So, let's ask and answer the first question. What was the condition of the hearts of the unbelieving women at this riverside? And it was closed, that's right. I heard the the correct answer because verse 14 speaks of a woman whose heart was opened. Now, he doesn't tell us that is the only woman whose heart was opened, but this is the one that Luke is focusing on. If it had not been opened, it would have been closed. So, the condition, the natural condition of unbelieving women at the riverside was closed. Second, for whom did that condition change? And the answer is, at least Lydia. Lydia. We know at least in Lydia's case, that condition changed. Her heart had been closed because now the Lord opens it. Whatever religious activities she did, if she was a, a proselyte, if, if she went through the, uh, the motions of worship, uh, yet like Cornelius, who, who also went through motions of worship, and yet the angel said there were words he needed to hear in order to be saved. And so here we see that though she's described as a worshiper of God, her heart still needs to be opened. So, Lydia is a person for whom this condition changed. Third question, how did it change? The Lord opened her heart. It's not something she decided she ought to do. It is not something Paul did for her. It's not something her friends did for her. It's something the Lord did for her. The Lord, and normally the Lord by itself means the Lord Jesus. Normally if you just read the word Lord in the New Testament, normally that refers to Christ. The Lord opened her heart to the Word. Now, the Word was brought to all of them, but the Word was heard by Lydia. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and, and they all heard the Word of God, but the work of the Lord took place at least in Lydia's heart. It's not only was the word of God externally brought to her, but it was internally received by her because the Lord opened her heart. And remember what is heart? It's it's her mind, it's her volition, it's her affections. It's the very center of her being. It's what makes her her. Her life flows from this. And this center, which was dead in trespasses and sins, as Paul says, the Lord opened to attend the things said by Paul. Why was that is the fourth question. Why was her heart opened? Well, let's plug in what we just learned a moment ago. Why was her heart opened? Because she was one of those who the Father gave to Christ to give eternal life to. You see? In eternity, God the Father gave Lydia to Christ. And He here opens her heart that He might give her the eternal life He'd accomplished for her on the cross. So why her? Because the Father had given her to the Son to save, and the Son did. Five, fifth question what was the effect of this opening of her heart? Well, she believed. How do I know she believed? For one thing, that's that suggested simply by the phrase that the Lord opened her heart to attend to the things said by Paul. as She heard the word and believed it, but verse 15 makes that a sure thing. When she and her household had been baptized, so baptism is a statement, it's a confession of faith. She heard, she believed, and she was baptized to confess and show that faith that God had brought her to. So there you see, God's decision, His decree, His plan in eternity past, for how to give eternal life, how to give saving faith to his elect. And here we see it in the history of an individual, of Lydia, when that decree has an impact on her, unfolds in her life, bringing her to saving faith. So that's important to have in place. We receive new life, but then again I ask, we've received new life, then what do we do? Do we just float along like a leaf on a stream? Well, that life is monergistic in its birth. God alone does the work. But secondly, Roman numeral 2, that life of faith is synergistic in its growth. And you just need to write the letters S Y N. It is synergistic in its growth. So, what does synergistic mean? It's the opposite of monergistic. All right, let me say a little bit more. In other words, if monergistic means that one person alone acts and does the work, sin means with, S Y N, not with an I, that means something else. S Y N means with, operating with, and so synergistic is we work with God. That in our growth, in our walking the life of faith, we indeed are active. We indeed must participate. We indeed must do. We do work with God. But how does that happen? That just seems odd. You say we're passive here, but now we're active. How is that even possible? Well, I'm glad you asked that, because I'd love to show you that from Scripture. Let's see how that happens. Letter A, the pivotal truth. Everything turns on this. This is, this is so important. If, if you take just a few things that I ever teach, this is one of the central things that I just uh, labor and labor to get across. And I, I believe you are, and I'll just keep working at it till I drop or I'm picked up. So first of all, faith's beginning is all about God's Word. The beginning of our life of faith is all about God's Word, and I just remind you of the the verse you all know, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. So our beginning of the life of faith is all about God's Word, and then what happens? Then when God brings His Word to us, opens our heart to see its beauty and truth and to embrace it, giving us saving faith, a new life. When that happens, what happens? Well, then it's totally different, right? Then we're just led by the Spirit, forget the Word of God. Then we just go by that still, small voice within, right? And we can lay our Bibles aside, phew, unless we need something for Sunday school. But otherwise, we just flip. No, number two, faith's maturing is also and equally all about God's Word. Number two, faith's maturing is also and equally to the same degree, just as surely, it is all about God's Word. John 8, 31 and 32. Nothing changes. We begin our Christian lives by the Word of God and we continue and progress and conclude our Christian lives by the Word of God. What does Jesus say? John 8, 31 and 32. If you didn't recognize what those words are, then I would urge you to turn there. Point your eyes at it. Help blazon it on your memory and your mind. John 8, 31, 32 So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, "If if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free." So the mark of a genuine disciple is that he what? continues in the word of Christ. Yes, he begins there but a genuine disciple continues in the Word of Christ. His life is all about the Word of Christ. His life as a disciple. So, that's the mark of a genuine disciple. If you continue in My Word, then you are truly My disciples. So, what about somebody who professes faith in Christ and then does not continue in Christ's Word? What is he? And uh, if anyone, any regular attender would just say, He's a carnal Christian. I'll have to consider the kind of work I've been doing here. No, he's not a carnal Christian. He's not a Christian at all. He's professed a faith he obviously does not possess. What gives me the right to say something like that? But Jesus says, if you continue in my words, you are truly my disciple." So the flip side of that, obviously, if you do not continue in my word, then... You're not truly my disciple. And he is uh, not a Christian. He is not a disciple. There's just one instrumentality. That's what needs to stand out to us boldly. The instrumentality of saving faith is the Word of God because that's the object of our faith. We recognize the Word of God. We realize that it's true and we rest on those truths. We submit to those truths. Those truths that are conveyed by the Word of God, but then the Christian life is also and equally all about the Word of God. Nothing nothing changes. Conversion brings us into that relationship, but the Christian life continues and grows in that relationship, the relationship to the Word of God. So, for salvation, it's the Word of God. For reality, for growth, for knowledge and freedom, as Jesus says, it's continuing in God's Word. Only by continuing do you mark yourself as a real disciple, And only in that way will you know the truth, and only in that way will you be set free. Jesus says. Jesus says. So, how is this possible for us? How is it that while before we hated the Word of God and resisted it, and were unable to submit to it, now we are called in to give ourselves to it, to pursue it, to learn it, to do it? How do things change so drastically? I'm glad you asked. Letter B. The principle of spiritual growth is painted out for us many places, but I'm going to use Romans chapter 8, verses 7, 9, and 13 and 14. And please do turn there. Romans chapter 8, and here we see the principle of spiritual growth. How it is that formerly dead people are now called to be active with the Word of God. So, first, let me read the verses Romans 8, 7. Because the mindset on the flesh, I would probably say the mindset of the flesh, the mindset the flesh produces, is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And then verse 9 says, however you, speaking to this Christian audience, however you are not in the flesh, but, and there's the strong contrast, but by contrast, in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. He's not a carnal Christian. He's not a Christian at all. Verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. For as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So, before regeneration, we see in verse 7, before generation, not only do we lack the desire to submit to God's law, to learn and do and embrace God's law, not only do we lack that desire, we lack the ability. Not only do we lack the desire and the ability, but we are passively and aggressively opposed to it. We are hostile to the Word of God. That's the condition of the unsaved person. After regeneration, however, we're no longer in the flesh, Paul says. We're in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in us. We're alive now. We've been set free from the flesh now. It's still present, but we're not enslaved to it. So instead of a mind that is hostile towards God's law and unable to submit, we now have a mind that loves God's law and has the ability to submit and wants to pursue God's law and learn to do God's law because we have a new mind, we have a new heart, and we have the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We are new people. And so this being the case, having been begotten anew, monergistically, and we're passive, Having been born again, having been begotten anew, now we may and must pursue. Our beginning as Christians is monergistic, our growth as Christians is synergistic because we've been freed, because we now have the Holy Spirit living in us and we have the ability to respond. I love the way the hymn puts it. Another one of my favorite hymns. And can it be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, a life-giving ray. I woke the dungeon blazed with light. Then what do we sing? My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. But it took a life giving act of God to break the chains and free my heart that I might walk with Him, that I might follow Him. And we see this in many verses. I'll just remind you of a couple Philippians 2 12 and 13, same principle. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We can work out because and only because God works in. We've been freed, we've been made alive, we've been made new people. Uh, Galatians 5.25 also says that. That was Philippians 2.12 and 13. Now Galatians 5.25. For if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in step with the Spirit. That's so short, it's so compressed, but there's so much truth. If we live by the Spirit, in other words, what we just read last week in John 3, that the Holy Spirit gives us a new birth. And we live in the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. The Spirit gives us new life. Or as we saw in Romans 8, the Spirit gives us a new mind and comes and lives within us. If we live by the Spirit, we're alive now, we're free now, we're new people, we're new creations now. That being the case, he says, let us walk in step with the Spirit. So no, I don't go limp and passive and wait to be carried along, which actually is not piety at all. It's, it's tempting God. It's unbelief. It's a form of rebellion, passive-aggressive rebellion against God to say, make me, basically, to God. Uh, that is not godly. <laughs> it's not a godly attitude. But instead, the, the, the Romans 8 says, we're led by the Spirit, meaning In the context, we're led to submit to God's law, to think the things that are life and peace. Or in the context of Galatians 5, we're led to walk in a way that produces the fruit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, kindness, patience, and so forth. You see, this is the life in the Spirit. But he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in step with the Spirit. So, the Spirit doesn't do this instead of me. The Spirit enables me to do this. I must apply and invest myself. And, and let me rephrase that. I must and I may. I may, therefore I must. Now, made alive and set free, I may and I must pursue the things of God as I was unwilling and unable to do before the new birth. So that's the principle. The principle is I am made alive and set free and given new desires to pursue and so I am called and commanded. Uh, As I've often said to the people who are tempted by this mystical muzziness, remember none of the commands of the New Testament are are, are directed to the Holy Spirit. God doesn't command the Holy Spirit to love your neighbor. Husbands, God doesn't command the Holy Spirit to love your wife, that's you. God doesn't command the Holy Spirit to submit to uh, your husbands and, and to respect them. That's you He commands. He doesn't command the Holy Spirit not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together and to exhort one another. That's us He commands. And how can we do anything about those commands? Because we've been made alive. We've been born anew. And the Spirit lives within us. And we have new hearts. New hearts. Still the flesh to battle, but new hearts to battle it. So, There is the principle. Now let's look at the practice. How do I do this? What's involved in my growing in faith? Letter C, the practice of growing in faith. And just give, obviously, something that could be a great many sermons all by itself, but just give some principles uh, of how to practice this, how to do this actually. And I want to begin by looking at the heart of this life of faith. What is the heart of this life of faith? The heart is in a strong desire, number one. The heart is in a strong desire. Now turn to 1 Peter 2 with me, please. 1 Peter 2. And I decided meditating on this, that this this passage deserves a whole lot more of our time together. So next week we'll return and focus on this and the context. There's a whole lot more to get out of this than I'm going to be able to give you today. So you may hear a little repetition, but I do want to bring some things out because this fits right here. This is where it all comes from. Solomon says, Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else because from it flow the springs of life. Well, this is about our heart. What do we desire most in our heart? Now hear what Peter says. Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, which we are. He just said in chapter 1 that we've been begotten again by the word of truth. As newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God and so forth. Well, coming to him is longing for the Word, because in the pure milk of the Word, we know Him. In the pure milk of the Word, we meet Jesus. This is where Jesus reaches out to us. It's where He makes Himself known to us by His Word. But as a newborn baby, I must long for that. That's what I want to focus on here today, verse 2. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word. And one of the terrible things, one of the reasons why Christendom is in such a mess today, is we've come to accept that it's not normal to long for the word and be a Christian somehow we've explained to ourselves and made ourselves feel okay about that people can be Christians not really care that much about the word of God when it comes to living and making their choices and certainly choosing what church they attend the word of God is maybe it's on the list maybe not even on the list but if it's on the list It's way down there because it's not what they long for most. But notice here is a command to long for the pure milk of the Word. Not just the milk of the Word, but the unadulterated milk of the Word. Faithful, not with additives, not with flavoring, but simply the milk of the Word. The milk that that consists of the Word of God, as Peter phrases it in Greek. Let me focus a bit just on that word, though, this week long for the pure milk of the Lord. That word long for, that's a a very strong word. Paul mostly uses it in the New Testament. And almost always when he uses it, he's using it of people who he's not with and really wants to be with. People he misses. People he yearns for. People who he has seen and wants to see again or he's really looking forward to Thinks about a lot. Really wants to see. Really misses them. Strongly desires their presence. That's the way Paul usually uses it. And the idea of the word is, is to yearn for something, to crave something, to really, really want it. And somehow, in our minds, it's okay with us that that, that kind of attitude is kind of exceptional for a Christian, that, that a Christian who really longs for the word of God is kind of a special, maybe ought to be a pastor, or a Sunday school teacher, or something like that. But we don't expect Christians, just by and large, to long for the word of God. To, to desire it, to crave it, and that's just not, we've accepted that, you know, and that's not really what we mostly want, but look, parents, I mean, if you had a baby, can you imagine parents being asked, oh, so you're, you had, I know you had a, a baby born to you a few weeks ago, how's your baby doing, and, and uh, you say, well, the baby's doing fine, really hasn't had any appetite and doesn't ever eat, but really, I think fine, can you even imagine somebody saying that? If the baby doesn't want to eat for a few hours, there's panic. <laughs> it's normal for a baby. You don't, and you don't have to talk a baby into wanting to eat. You don't have to say, you know, I mean, it's really time to feed. Shouldn't you be crying now? I mean, you know, aren't you hungry? You don't have to explain that to a baby. Because why? Because the baby's hungry. Why is a baby hungry? Because he's alive. And there's the problem. Why aren't so many Christians hungry for the Word of God? i got to say that in a lot of cases it's because they aren't alive. And they are show Christians, but not real Christians. They're, they're, they're outward Christians, but they're not born again Christians, which is the only kind of real Christian there is because it's Jesus who says that the mark of a true disciple is he continues in the word, and what is it that drives us to continue in the word? Desire. Desire. You don't have to talk a baby into desiring, but again, in Christians, it's, it's, it's such a relatively rare thing, and I'll just say briefly, maybe we'll talk about it more this week, it's just, this has really been bothering me for years, um, let, me, let me make, say something about politics that is not meant as a political comment, and I, I not meant as a political comment, Um, but you know there are a lot of people who complain about the president, and they talk about the president as if the president is the problem, and every time I hear somebody say that, I say, the president is not the problem, if you think he's the problem. He's a symptom of a problem. What's the problem? If he's a problem, what's the problem? The millions and millions of people who gave him that position. So you look at the church and you say, oh, the church is in such a miserable state today and and people want to talk as if, well, it's really Joel Osteen's fault and it's really this false teacher and that false teacher's fault. No, it's not. (laughs) Who would they be if people weren't filling their churches? Who would they be if everybody knew that to be a Christian is to long for the pure milk of the word and that there's no other kind of Christian? And there's no point calling yourself a Christian if you don't long for the pure milk of God's Word. If that was just part of the definition of a Christian, where would the false teachers be? Um, well, they'd, they'd be asking, do you want fries with that? Is, is where they'd be, I imagine. Because the reason why they are pastors and pastorettes of megachurches is because people cram those churches. They don't say, well, you know, let's do something that's other than Bible teaching and nobody will come, but let's do that, you know, just because it's the right thing to do. They do it because people pour out for it. Because we have somehow lost the, the, the truth that to be a, a genuine Christian is to be alive. And to be alive is to crave the unadulterated milk of the Word of God. And, and I just want to notice here, and, and we'll return to it more next week, Lord willing, but isn't it striking to you He's commanding you to, de- to desire something. He's commanding, us to, he's commanding our affections. He's commanding us to desire something. Now we joke about that, you know, that you can't command someone to feel a certain way. Cheer up! You know, that doesn't ever work. <laughs> Usually it's counterproductive. But he is commanding us to feel something. He's commanding us to desire something. How do you do that? Well, that's part of why I decided that would be worth the whole sermon next week. And we'll look at that, but, but note it. This is the heart of it, the desire. Now imagine uh, people will have but, but, but to that. They'll say, well, but, 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 uh, I don't have that desire. You know, but I know I'm a Christian, but I don't have that desire. And my response would be, you have never had that desire? If you have never had that desire, you really need to reexamine whether you're a Christian You need to do what Paul says and test yourself to see if you're in the faith. And if you conclude you're not, you need to run to Christ. Now, I want to return to that in a second, but suppose I ask that question, you never have? No, I have, but I don't desire it like I should. Okay, well then, the first thing I'd say is then take that seriously. And if you've ever had a serious thing in your life like I have with my surgery, you know, you call the doctor, you ask, is it normal to have this happen? And what you want to hear is, oh, yes. And then you're, you don't worry about it anymore. But if it's, no, I've never heard of that before. Well, that, that's, a, that's a concern, you know, and you want to know what's normal and what's concerning. Well, if you're a Christian and you just seldom really desire the Word of God, that's concerning. That's concerning. Now, I want to hasten to this. In both of those cases, if your answer is, I've never had that desire, or I don't desire it like I could, in both of those cases, I want to say to you, well, then run to Jesus. It's the devil's game to say, oh, look at all your failings and shortcomings. You don't dare look at God with that. You don't dare to turn to God with that. You're just a complete folding. You better just go off your own way. In fact, I've got some great things you can do with the rest of your life. I've got a bunch of them. I'm, I'm loaded with them, so just give me your ear and I'll take care of you. Now, that, that's the wrong way. You see this, yeah, it's something to worry about, and let that worry, that worry's not a bad thing if you let it drive you to Jesus. I mean, Is pain good or bad? Well, it's bad, you know, I've, I've had pain and not pain, and not pain is better. But is it good that when a kid sticks his hand into a flame, it hurts him? That is good. Why is that good? It tells him, don't do that that's not a good thing to do. And so you, you hear this and you think, oh, that's a, a worry. Yeah, if you're worried, then that's good. If you're not worried, that's really bad. If you say, I have no desire and I don't care, that's really bad. That's very bad. But if you say, I don't have a desire and I really want to, oh, yeah, then I have the solution for you. And it's just only one solution. Go running to Jesus with that. And you go to God and you say, I have a cold heart. I have a dry heart. And you lay that out before him. I'll talk more about this more uh, next week, Lord willing, but uh, uh, that much to that. But because I want to, I want to go on to the next. The heart of it is the desire. Without the desire, you know, a preacher like me can get up and I can lay out reading plans and I can give you fifteen reasons for why you ought to study the Bible, and and you can read the life of great men and women of the faith, and it won't have any impact if you just don't have that desire. But what I want to say is, it's not normal and healthy for a genuine Christian not to have that desire. That that desire is something that we should have and we should cultivate. And we should encourage and we should seek God for. And if you don't have it, well then go to God with it and ask him for it. Ask him to work in your heart. And, and I'll, have, I'll have more to say about that next week, Lord willing. But, but uh, it's important, normal, and healthy at the heart to desire the unadulterated milk of God's word. And let me say just quickly, lest you be misled or have the wrong idea, when Peter talks about babies and milk, he's not using those pictures like Paul does where a baby is a Christian who isn't growing up and that's bad. And, and milk is, in Hebrews, milk is just simple doctrine and not meat. That's not the way Peter's using it here. He's just talking about babies and milk. It's natural for a baby who's alive to desire milk and it's natural for a Christian who's alive to desire the Word of God, you see. So, Secondly, it's Habit. We've seen its heart, now let's see its habit. And its habit is steady progress. i just go right to that passage I just alluded to. But its habit is steady progress. Now before we go to this verse, what verse did we just see earlier that says that same thing? That the habit of a Christian is steady progress. It's Jesus who says, if you are truly my disciples, you continue in my word. He says it backwards. If you continue in my word, you're truly my disciple. So the Christian life means a steady progress. But now turn to Hebrews chapter 5 and look at verses 12 through 14 with me. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 12 through 14. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... And just pause there for a second. He's saying that there is an expectation of growth and production. Is is he not? He's saying, okay, you converted five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. By now you ought to be in a position to teach others. You ought to have learned enough that you have to give away. But he goes on. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. See, here, he's using milk differently than Peter does. You you, you shouldn't be a baby anymore, but you still need a baby diet. You can't tolerate steak and burgers. You just need milk. The elementary principles of the oracles of God. You come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature. How do you get to be mature? Who because of practice have their senses trained to discern both good and evil? Who because of practice have their senses trained to discern both good and evil? So, like we sang just a few minutes ago, take time to be holy. Take time, effort, and practice to be holy. It is synergistic. We must grow. We must eat. We must review. We must learn. We must remember. We must apply. We must grow. And that's expected. And how important is that? Well, what's Hebrews 6 about? Hebrews 6, the very next verse is him saying, you know, I'm actually worried about whether you're actually saved or not. I'm I'm worried about whether you're converted. I mean, there's one of the explanations for why, why a child doesn't grow is because he's not alive. And you haven't grown and so that's a, that's a possibility that's frightening me right now because I don't see growth in you, the writer says to them. So this is a very important thing. But notice solid food is for the mature because of practice, have their senses trained, get menus, worked out athletically. And you've heard the old joke of the, the guy in New York says, um, ask, some, ask somebody passing by, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And what's the answer? Practice. practice, practice, practice. (laughs) In other words, taking the question to mean how do you get to be good enough to perform in Carnegie Hall? Uh, Not answering it with directions. Well, how do you get to be a mature Christian? By sitting in church Sunday after Sunday? Well, that's better than not. But it takes more than that. He says who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern both good and evil. It takes practice. It takes work. It takes me taking what God has given me and using that to grow, longing for it and pursuing it, continuing in it and working at it. It doesn't just fall out of heaven. It doesn't. So while well, there's so many buts could be given to this, I, I imagine somebody saying, but I'm not really studious. You know, that's never true. That's never true. Have you ever had the say, somebody saying, I'm really not a student. That's, that's never true. You get to talking about them and you find out, well, they know a lot about Sewing or horses or video games or, or, you know the Marvel Comic Universe or something. There, there's, there's things they know all sorts of stuff about. They're just not studious about the Word of God. It's, they don't lack the ability to study. Uh, by and large. I mean, like 99.9 percent of, of the time. it's not a real personal inability. It's the first thing, the heart. They just don't desire it. It's amazing what a person can do when he desires it. Amen? Haven't you seen that? Amazing what someone can do when he desires it. And when he doesn't desire it, what he's really good at is making excuses why he's not pursuing it. And that's never healthy in the Christian life. So I'm not really studious. That's never true. The the message of Hebrews is that if we're not serious about God's Word, we're headed for disaster. You get that from Hebrews chapter 1 to Hebrews chapter 13 in a dozen different ways. But what he's saying over and over again, yes, he's saying Christ is supreme, but Christ as we know Him from Scripture, Christ as we've learned from, about Him from Scripture. And if we don't listen to that Scripture, if we're not serious about that Scripture, then we will drift, we will fall away. There's no renewing to repentance. We're headed for the, the, the terrible wrath and fire of God. It's a very, very serious thing not to be serious about God's word. We're headed for disaster. So uh, best not to make excuses, but to have the heart and by the heart to find the way. And the way requires progress. That's the habit. It requires progress. And finally, third, what's the harvest of someone who does desire God's word and continues in God's word, progresses in God's word? The harvest is spiritual fruit. It's spiritual fruit. And, oh, I mean... There's so much we could say about that, but I just found one passage to bring out some. John chapter 15, verses 5 through 8. John 15, verses 5 through 8. If you turn there, that's where we will end today. John 15:5 through 8. Our Lord says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him He bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Is that just a mystical, ineffable, mindless thing? Well, read on. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So what does it mean in practical terms to abide in you, Lord? Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. We come to know him by his words. We show ourselves to be true disciples by his words. And we abide in him by his words. Why? Because his words are how he makes himself known to us. It's how he opens his heart to us. How he makes his will known to us. And how he personally connects with us. Not by foods, not by rituals, not by aromas or sounds, but by his words. This is how he unfolds himself. This is how he brings us to know him. This is how we abide in him. And so, his words abide in us and his words direct what we pray about. And we pray in accord with God's will. And in so doing, we bear much fruit and we prove to be his disciples. And that's the second time He said that. In chapter eight, he says, if you continue in my word, you'll prove to be my disciples. And here he says, you continue in my word, you'll bear fruit and prove to be my disciples. But the the heart of it all, the key to it, I should say, is continuing in his word. Now, somebody says, well, but, but I'm too old to do that. And then the other one is, I'm too young to do that. I just look in vain in any of these passages for something that says that this is only for people between the ages of uh, 28 and, and 59. You know, I just, I just have not found that passage yet because there is no such passage. The Word of God is addressed to us basically from our mother's breast to our to the grave. The Word of God speaks to us our whole lives and we're called to progress in it our whole lives. And yes, health and, and, and age and understanding uh, these, the ravages of time. Yeah, they have a bearing on what we're able to do, but see, that's never the issue. The issue is not, well, this guy is doing this much, so am I doing this much? The issue is, okay, I started here. Am I still there, or am I growing? And I'm called to grow, you see? And while there's life, there's every reason for growth. This is spiritual life. It begins in God's Word. It continues in God's Word. It will continue. It will come to fruition by God's Word. And that is true for my entire life. There's no but that deflects that. The way to... Jesus doesn't have a plan B. This is the way we abide in Him. His Word's abiding in us. Us bearing fruit. So, faith is all about God's Word. Do you get that? Faith is all about God's Word. From the very start to the very termination or or, or culmination of it, faith is all about God's Word. How do you come to saving faith? You must hear the Word of God and believe it by being born again. How do you grow in faith? By continuing in the Word of God. It starts with God's Word. It continues it. We need to desire it. We need to continue in it. We need to grow in it. The life of faith, then, is what? It's life in the Word of God. It's life in the Word of God. That is what we're born again for. That is both the aim and the fruit of being born anew. We're born anew that we, uh, by the Word of God that we might love the Word of God and believe the Word of God and live according to the Word of God. Grasp it, grow in it, love it, pursue it, bear fruit in it. That's the message of Scripture. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, and all of its power and clarity. We pray that the Holy Spirit of God will teach it, impress it on our hearts, We pray that the Holy Spirit of God will do what only he can do, which is to make personal application to every man, woman, and child here. Only you can do that for the people in as varied places in their lives as there are here. Those perhaps who've never heard the gospel, those perhaps who've heard it all through their childhood but never responded. Father, we pray for a work of the Spirit of God to open those eyes, open those hearts to attend to the word of truth, the gospel. And for any discouraged and faltering, we pray that these words will encourage and give strength and direction as to where life and direction and hope and joy are to be found, where you were to be found. And we pray that in all things you will be glorified through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.